Well, good morning. You guys seem nice and bright and awake today. You have a Bible with you or you've got something that you use in place of a Bible. Um, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have been taking some time in a passage... So if any of you are paying careful attention, I know you may not be paying careful attention. I'm glad that you're paying attention at all. You might be noticing that, wow, we are not moving very quickly through the book of 1 Corinthians here. Because we are going to be in the same passage we were in the last week or two. And we're going to still be in that passage again next week. Um, We're not going to be at that pace throughout all of Corinthians. We are going to pick up the pace here. But there is something being said here by the Apostle Paul that needs to be a preeminent aspect of of our own theology and belief. And it it is his featuring of the word of the cross. And so that's what he has opened up. The thing that's going to fix and touch all the needs of the Corinthians is going to be bound up in this element here. So we want to Spend some time in it, and then we're going to move a little quicker through the rest of the book. All right, you've got some notes today. Hopefully you are taking those out with us, and you're revisiting these as you have an opportunity to sit with the Lord throughout the week. Uh, I think these are available on our websites, our app, etc., so you can open these up electronically. But I want you to do something before I get into the Word here. I want you to write something on the top of the page. So if you've got something to write with, and you should always have something to write with when you come, write the word discern. D-I-S-C-E-R-N. Write the word discern at the top of the page and put an exclamation point next to it. Discern. And then let's answer this first question in your outline. The question of, are you hearing voices? I'm not sure where you go with that one. That just gets thrown out there. (laughs) Uh, But according to the Apostle Paul in this passage, there are voices out there to be heard. And if there were voices in his day that could be heard, can you imagine the voices that are available to be heard today in the information age? You and I are tuned into never-ending voices that are saying something to us, that are communicating something to us, that are passionate about something. Did anybody come across any voices this week that were really passionate about something? Anybody? You guys in a coma this week. <laughs> there were some passionate voices out there this week, right? The news was filled with people listening and filled with passion. It was the voices of conservative politics and liberal politics that were passionate about something that really, really mattered. The, the voices of the hashtag MeToo movement were really, really loud this week and touching all kinds of ways and touching how people feel about life and situations and kind of framing for you how you should feel about these issues that are going on all around you. You probably interacted with some of those voices. You may have become another voice in the midst of voices. You may have posted something. You may have responded to somebody's voice with your own voice. 
I won't ask for a show of hands here, but uh, how many of you guys were really, really animated this week? Right, your emotions kind of at a little bit of an amber alert level over something that was said, the way it was said, the position that was taken, and you either were all over agreeing with that, or you were just heatedly opposed to it. Right? Voices that are out there. And this just happened to be the slice of the voices that are available to us this week, you know, surrounding the Supreme Court nominee and how to sift through situations and analyzing and making decisions and politics and government, etc. But you and I have voices that operate in us that become a bit of a sounding board for how we do life. Normally in the news, it's not unusual for there to be black voices and white voices that get featured in the news every week. And you're invited to either come alongside or to oppose and, and you do that because you've been listening to voices throughout your life. And these voices have offered you a viewpoint that's begun to make sense to you. And you're attached to that thing. And that thing matters to you now. And so now it's a bit of a sounding board that when people say stuff, it bounces off of that issue. So, I mean, you're sitting here today, you're either black today or you're white. I mean, that's just how it works. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with a black viewpoint or a white viewpoint, but the odds are something from that perspective has touched your life and has shaped you. And you've got opinions about things because that's touched and shaped you. There are issues in gender that are loud voices today. Issues that address whether you're male or female, issues about your views of life and what's right and what's wrong and what needs to be featured and what needs to be said more and what needs to stop being said based on your view of female or male issues. Listen, when it comes to who we are, when I say who we are, I'm, I'm taking the same posture that the Apostle Paul, by the way, be careful how you read the Bible. The Apostle Paul is not writing to the public square of the town of Corinth in this letter. This is not the Apostle Paul on CNN. This is not the Apostle Paul writing a, a document that's going to be published in the Corinthian Times. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the believers who are a part of the church at Corinth. So there is a mindset that he is aware that exists among these believers. But there's trouble among these believers. These are believers who are having a trouble with their viewpoints and being able to be in the same room together. This, this is not a first century problem, is it? Listen, I, I know these stories exist. I know that it's quite capable, because I have known people who have actually done this, that you could come into this church, spend a few weeks here, and find out that we're on the wrong side of one of your pet issues, and you're done here. Or you go to a covenant group, and you find out people in this covenant group say something or do something about a particular thing that you feel strongly about. Voices have educated you about how to feel about this. And, and you're going to get your fellowship with them is going to be determined not by the word of the cross, 
but about how that person or that group lines up with your issue, whatever your issue happens to be. There are churches today that, and you know, I'm talking race, I'm talking generations. Generations of people will fellowship with one another based on their generational ideas rather than the word of the cross. I remember going to visit a church in the city, a church that had been very helpful to us in the Katrina situation that we found ourselves in. And so I attended their service on a Sunday, and I was a little surprised when I walked in. I, I think there wasn't anybody in the room under the age of 50 years old. Just everybody was gray or blue-headed. I mean, it was, it was an older group everywhere. And I thought, well, what's happening here in this church? But you know, you can go in some churches today and you can't find a person over the age of 40. And you should be asking yourself, what's, what's happening in that church? Why is that happening in this church? Well, because people hear voices. And they only want to be around people who are going to end up on the same side of some of these issues that they have. They want their way of life, their view to be reinforced and applauded and appreciated. And they want to get around people who are going to do that. So today you could have women's issues that are are really big for you. And I could say something and get on the wrong side of you pretty quickly. You could have millennial issues or baby boomer issues that I can get on the wrong side of that by what I'm going to say. And pretty much I'm, I'm, I'm trying to warm you up to the idea that no matter who you are today, I'm probably going to offend you. So if no one likes me at the end of this message, all right, we'll just deal with it. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's, here's Paul's interaction with the people who are hearing voices. And he's trying to get them to hear one voice louder than all the rest. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Paul says, for the word, let me, let me just say this, pick up those three points underneath this passage in your notes there. I want you to notice these three things. I'm not going to sit in them. I just want you to notice them as we read this. Note the presence of principles. There's ideas everywhere among us. Note them. Pay attention to them. This verse is going to speak about these principles, these ideas that are out there. Note that there are wisdom brokers in every setting. People are going to pick up ideas and be spokespersons for them. They had that there. They had, we have it today. And, and note that there is a contrast and even a hostility between these ideas getting in the same room with each other. All right, note that as we just read this passage. Paul says, for the word of the cross, in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For, you know, here's one group, Jews, demand signs. Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And a little bit later into that next 
section in chapter 2, this thought continues. There's a lot in this, these passages for us to, to take note of. But in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, right? These guys are shopping for wisdom. They're trying to find the ideas that frame life. Paul says, well, we do impart that. We do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, thank you for your word that is living and relevant. Lord, we're... we're 2,000 years removed. Our life feels and looks very different than dusty roads in Corinth, but yet we really are not far removed and things are really not all that different. Lord, your word is so relevant to us. So capture our hearts, bring us your truth. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. J.P. Moreland has written a book recently called Scientism and Secularism. He's an apologist, philosopher, He says this, in every culture in which the church is present, God's people are to avoid particular manifestations of the world in that culture. However, to do this, it is not enough just to know scripture. As Christians, we must also understand, listen, the systems of thought, practice, And value in our culture that are worldly. And be able to make this clear to fellow Christians and explain how to refute those ungodly systems using both biblical and non-biblical evidence. Now he's an apologist so he's making a case from a particular bent. And I'd go pretty close to where he's at. I, I don't think I would minimize the effect of just knowing scripture at the expense of not knowing some other things in the culture. But I do think it's, it's wise for us to be aware that there are these systems that are out there. Systems of thought that people create to try and explain life and then try and explain how to get to a good life. How to get to a life that's going to matter and going to be lived with certain values and be rewarding to us in particular ways. And so there are, there are Republican systems And there are Democrat systems that are out there. There are black systems. And there are white systems. There are millennial systems. And there are baby boomer systems. There are feminist systems. Right? All these are collections of thought that tell people, these are the things that matter. Make sure you get this right. Why? Why why does this matter that I get it right? Because the good of your life is depending on it. That's ultimately what they're saying to us, right? Right? So the future good of our country and the land that we live in and the lives that we're going to construct in it, politics steps in and says the future good of that is dependent upon a Republican system or a Democratic system or some offspin of that. And that's why life was so noisy this week. Because if you end up on the wrong issue on the wrong side of an issue, you're led to believe this can't take me to a good place. And so therefore, I'm animated and I'm, I'm up in arms. So if you got really emotional and freaked out this week, which a lot of us did, <clears throat> you, you might want to tap into, why am I so jazzed about what I just heard? 
because it might give something away in your own heart, right? A critical, a critically important thing that Paul does in this passage is he teaches the church about discernment, about the need to be discerning in the culture in which you find yourself, right? I wrote this in your outline, life is going to come at you. You must develop the ability to know what in in your age, in your time, is from God. What agrees with God? What undermines God and his ways? What erodes God, right? It's not coming out as super hostile, anti. It's just eroding the things that God has called us to build our lives on. And what is just right out hostile to God. You and I live in a culture, we live in an age, we live in a generation that the Bible says this about it. 1 John chapter 2 says, do not love, period. Does anybody know that those three words go together in the Bible? Just, you know, the Bible is a book about love and we're supposed to love. Well, do you know those three words go together right here? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So so the Bible has this understanding that you are going to live in this age and you're going to have a little bit of an attitude toward the age. And I think what this verse is after, it's after our sense of loyalty. What are you loyal to? And be careful because since you were little, you've been taught to be loyal to some things. But we're Americans. We grew up in America. We think we live in the finest country in the world. We are a democratic form of government. We believe in those things. We value those things. Those things matter to us. We are loyal to them. Before you get overly loyal to some of these things, what you don't want to do as a Christian, as a Christian, you're primary loyalty is to God the Father to his viewpoint and his agenda does does anybody here know that democracy is not in the Bible as a matter of fact I find it very interesting that anybody anybody now listen I wouldn't want to live in another country I'm grateful for the way in which our founding fathers thought through how to balance power and limit the amount of tyranny that people can have over one another. I think it's the best shot out there. But you understand, I've read a Bible that introduces me to the doctrine of depravity. That at the core of the human existence is a corrupted seed in the heart of every human being. So when I gather a large group of idiots together (laughs) and they all vote on something, how many of you know they're going to choose the idiot option? That's just, but that's democracy, right? It's democracy. (laughs) Yeah, that's democracy. And I guess it's better than just letting one really powerful idiot run all over everybody else. Yeah, that's better. Don't 
defend that like it's right up there with the Bible. It's got problems. Have you noticed that we had problems in our democracy in the past week? A group of people voted on some rules as to how a Senate operates and how a Senate committee operates. Did you notice not everybody played by those rules? But the democracy created them. And I thought they were a good attempt at trying to work through something that's difficult. Don't be loyal to things at the expense of being loyal to God's wisdom, to the word of the cross. Listen, this is true whatever race you are. Do not be loyal to your race. Because when God looks, and, and listen, everybody wants to argue the race issue. You know, God recognizes the race of Adam. The human race. And you and I recognize one race over another and defend and hear voices from our past that shape our view. Do do not be loyal to your race. Be loyal to the God of the races. Don't be loyal to your gender. Taking up women's issues. Taking up men's issues. I mean, listen, in the church right now, I know right now, there, there would be women in this gathering that want to hear. You, you'd love to hear me today talk about how to handle the hashtag Me Too issues. And, and, you, and you might be tempted to weigh whether or not you're going to spend another day in this church based on that. And you know, there's, there's a bunch of white men in this church right now who, who don't know what to do with themselves because they're white men. That's like pariah. Like the one thing you don't want to be right now in America is a white man. And so you're a white man waiting for somebody to talk about this whole thing that's going down, man. I'm so sick of this. So animated. Oh, won't you say something about that, man? I mean, um, be careful what you are loyal to. Older baby boomers, younger millennials, be careful what you are loyal to. We are called to be loyal to something, yes, but Paul is highlighting for us the voice that needs to drown out other voices. It doesn't mean these aren't issues. It doesn't mean they don't need to be addressed. But our loyalty lies with the word of the cross that has been revealed to us by God himself. So take careful note, right? Here's how we get to this issue in 1 Corinthians. Remember what launched this conversation? What launched this conversation was Paul saying, hey, I hear from some folks that you guys got some divisions and some problems among you. Y'all can't seem to get along in the body of Christ. Some of y'all are loyal to this. Some of y'all are loyal to that. Some of y'all claim loyalty here. That's what generated this conversation. That's what the next thought from Paul was. You know what we need to talk about? We need to talk about the centrality of the word of the cross. And we need to push these other issues to the edge of the picture. Because they've crowded their way in. And they have highlighted something of the naturalism of man. And they've just divided the church one after another. So this is a great lesson being taught here. But every generation has got to learn this message. They need it in the first century. We need it in the 21st century. So let me run us through some of this clash of the first century. Romans and Greeks and Jews. Oh my. Sounds like. So we're just going to just a quick run here. I don't want to spend too much time with these folks. But what gets identified by 
Paul is, is the groups, the voices that have been heard by these people for years. The, the vast majority of the, of the gathering there in Corinth would be Romans and Greeks with a sprinkling in of Jews. So you had these three groups with influential thoughts and ideas that occupied them. Right? So when you hear these words, the, the, where's the wise man and where's the debater of this age? Those are more Roman and Greek categories. D.A. Carson says, wisdom was a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it, right? Not too different today. The wise man was someone who adopted and defended one of the many competing public worldviews. Those who were wise in this sense might have been Epicureans or Stoics or Sophists or Platonists. But they had this in common. They claimed to be able to make sense out of life and death and the universe. Right? That's what these systems want to do. They want to be able to provide a roadway to the good life. This is how people need to behave. This is what they need to do towards one another. These are the policies that they need to have. These are the belief systems that they need to have. And if we all do that, it's going to take us to a good place. All right, that's what everybody's trying to do. Get this thought from Carson. He says, in Greek culture, rhetoric was so highly regarded that the best public philosophers were almost inevitably gifted and trained rhetoricians. To them, form was as important as content. Form was as important as content. Has anybody watched the news lately? This hasn't died, has it? The most skilled debaters of the day are now on your TV screen or on your radio every night. And it's interesting that it's at night because, oh, all this stuff has happened. I mean, all these guys open up with, oh, we got a big show tonight. We got a lot to talk about. Oh, thank you for helping me digest the events of life today. I I need your moron commentary to tell me what to believe about everything that just happened. What was good? What was not good? What should I be concerned about? What are you concerned about? You look pretty angry. Should I be angry too? This is what's happening for us every night. We get a hosted tour of how to interpret life. Through these systems. And the most skilled individuals, the debaters of the day, are the ones who are going to guide us. Nothing is different. Well, the only thing that's different is you don't have to go to an amphitheater or meet at the town square. You can just turn your TV on. They'll come to you now. You couldn't do that in the first century. But other than that, it's pretty much the same. Right. One other category that Paul throws in, you got, you got the, the big talkers, the philosophers, the debaters of the age, and, and you got these scribes. He throws them in. Where's the scribe? D.A. Carson says, what Paul has in mind is the sense of the term among Greek-speaking Jews. The grammateus was the scribe. The expert in the law of God. The person knowledgeable in biblical heritage and in all the tradition that flowed from it. Now, I, I doubt Paul is taking to task here accurate biblical pursuits. He, he is 
grabbing by the throat the religious traditional world that has added to God's revelation man's way of doing religion. And that voice is still available to us today as well. But, but here's, remember, this is Paul's audience is Corinth. This is not the town square. His concern is for how these ideas seep into the church and into the thinking of the church. Right? Ben Witherington says, even though they were converted to a new religious orientation, the Corinthian Christians brought with them into the ecclesia, the church, many of the primary social values gained over a life of living with a particular cultural orientation. Do you think that is still true? That if you were raised in white suburban America, you might come into the body of Christ with white suburban ideas. But if you were raised in black America, you might come into the church with black ideas. If you were raised conservative and your parents voted conservative and had conservative values, that that you formulate your views based on those ideas. Listen, we come together in the church and there's a lot of our backgrounds that are just shaped by different voices before we got here. So it's a challenge for us to be aware whether those ideas are seeping into the church. Are you, I'm going to give you some examples of seepage. I want you to be able to notice this when you read your Bible. The Bible sounds a certain way on purpose because stuff seeped into the first century. And it's the seepage that gives us a lot of reasons why the Bible is saying what it's saying. It's trying to say, hey, somebody, somebody plug that hole and don't let that stuff come in here anymore. Because it's, you remember the Bible is going to say, do not love certain things. Do not believe certain things. Right? So let me just give you a couple of examples so you can pay attention to them. Look in Galatians. If you turn back just a couple of books. Galatians, if Galatians is taking on something, it's taking on misplaced Judaism. It's going after the scribe, if you will. And it's going to take issue with introducing something beyond the word of the cross that's being treated like it's really essential. And this is why Paul sounds the way he does. A couple, you can read the whole book and there's a lot in here, but these are a couple of examples. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right? There's the centrality of what we believe. That frames everything about us. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now listen, this is not drifting very far from what we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. About the God who chose, not the impressive, not the wealthy, not the movers and shakers. God chose you by grace. How did you become a Christian? By God's grace. He chose you who were foolish and unimpressive and had all kinds of sin issues. So Paul says, hey, with that in mind, how did you get started in all this? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Why are you adding things that must be done For Christians, must be done. Why are you adding that? 
And all of us have, have been in religious settings where stuff like that gets added. It's another voice. And it's hostile to the word of the cross. And he goes on chapter 5 verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, the Old Testament practice of circumcision as being essential, needed for one who would be in covenant with God. If you accept that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. See, something had seeped into the Galatian church that was being passed around from one person to another. And there was a failure to discern that's not God. Stop passing that around. That's not God. The Apostle Paul's got to step in and correct that because the church wasn't addressing it. The church was failing to discern. There's interesting, if you, if you study 1 John, look at 1 John. 1 John's got an idea that floats its way into it that's a rather old idea. And it's taken shape and it's, it's now it's about to reinterpret the Bible. And reinterpret, in particular, the person of Christ and his incarnation. If you've read 1 John, you've noticed these things. You, you, just, you might not know why such an emphasis here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, there is a redundancy here. You begin to hear it. How many times are you going to tell us this thing was manifest? How many times are you going to tell us you saw it and touched it? Why this emphasis? Well, because of something that they believed that would not allow for that to have been true. This is being written because of an idea that's inside the church and it's flourishing. And that idea is going to spread itself out into the natural realms, the physical dimensions. Because there was a hostility in Gnosticism against anything that was physical, that was material. Where'd that come from? People brought it with them into the church. Where'd they get it? Well, it was, it was a spin-off of Platonism. It was, it was probably four centuries old in some form. Where... Plato attempted to understand existence and reality. And he was a philosopher. And he had a school of thought. And he passed on some ideas to his people that got into the culture. So the ideas began to be that, you know, the seen realm, the material realm, is in and of itself inherently evil. The unseen realities are of a different nature and are pure. And so this idea travels through time. And then you have the Christian theology that comes along and teaches God himself became a man. Wait, he became what? A man. He walked around in a human body. No, couldn't have happened. Couldn't happen. That's not even possible. What do you mean it couldn't have happened? You challenging what the Bible says? That could not have happened because flesh and anything material is inherently evil. God could not have become a human being. So all kinds of explanations begin to develop as to, well, who really was Jesus? Because he couldn't have been a human being because that's inherently evil. 
Where'd you get that idea? You got that from the Bible? Well, no, it was just common cultural material. Everybody knows that. And then spinoffs of those ideas that went further were, since only that which is non-material is pure, that which is material is corrupt, so it kind of doesn't really matter what you do with the physical dimensions of life. And that's, again, why 1 John sounds this way in chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. People were running around saying they were Christians, but they're all fornicating, have sexual immorality going on, which is why 1 Corinthians is going to spend a lot of time in that category. Because they had developed a thinking that says, whatever you do with your physical body, it doesn't really matter anyway, because it's only the spiritual dimension of you that's pure. So they were just going around, doing whatever they wanted to do. And so John comes along and says, no, 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 you know, if you're really a Christian, you're, you're actually going to change what you do. Your outward behaviors begin to be affected. You're not going to be that way anymore. You're not going to practice things that are sinful. Well, these ideas were from Gnosticism. Right, you go all the way over. This is always an interesting verse for some folks to misuse. Chapter 4 in 1 John, verse 1. says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, right? Make sure stuff is sound. Don't just believe whatever comes from Oprah or whoever. Test things. Listen to them with a discerning ear and go, whoa, that's not right. Whoa, that's off. Right? This is the way we're supposed to live. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. All right, if you're like me when you first read that verse and you were younger, I thought that was a litmus test for me to figure out whether a person was demon-possessed or not. So if the person was manifesting something that looked like it could be demonic, you'd ask them that question, did Jesus come in the flesh? As though that's why that verse was given, was as a test moment to figure out whether this is a demon or not. Now, this is a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was denying that Jesus Christ could have come in the flesh. It it just couldn't believe that because it had another system of thought in place that the Bible began to be interpreted out of those ideas rather than the Bible determining what to believe about those ideas. It got it backwards. Now, you know, why is this really relevant to us today? Because before you came to Christ and in the world that you live, there's already some ideas that are at work and at play. And and they make sense to us and we get attached to them emotionally, logically, and we bring them with us and then we use them to interpret what the Bible is saying. So in the last 80 years, there's some ideas that came that became very popular in our culture. You kind of, you, you start finding the flourishing of them with a guy like a name, Norman Vincent Peale. The power of positive thinking. It was his novel. This, this was cutting edge. This, this was transformative ideas. And it traveled through time and it eventually begins to seep into the church. And, and guys like Robert Schuller were very popular 
California Episcopal. Went on TV, big, huge ministry, picking up these ideas, formulating thoughts based in that. And, and a, a lot of people then began to pick it up in the church. And what became central, became focused, was, was positivity and the power of, of believing certain things and thinking a certain way. That's transformative for your life. You just think a certain way. And you just exercise faith a certain way. And just be positive. And, and, there, and there's a destiny awaiting you. And, and then the human potential movement that brought us self-help, self-counsel. Joel Osteen lives in this world. Now, but what happens... What happens to the word of the cross when this stuff becomes central? Listen, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to say everybody walk out of here looking like you're sucking lemons and you're not positive about anything. Be skeptical of everything, criticize everything, and just be negative. Okay, I am not saying that at all. But if you will notice, if you will go listen to 100 Joel Osteen messages in a row... You will be hard-pressed to tell me how much time was spent dealing with the word of the cross. And how much time was spent teaching you how to improve you. And how to get better. And how to have a life that's got a certain shape. And how to believe big things. And how to have a destiny. And, and how to turn your world around. And how to, how to live in times are hard. So little about the word of the cross. This is seeped into the church. And so when you and I start hearing the Bible talk about repentance, when we hear thoughts about human depravity rather than human potential, we start feeling, "Mm, that's wrong. That doesn't sound right. You know, I like a lot of what Keith says until he gets to that topic. And then he gets weird. I don't know whether I'm weird or whether you're weird. Because we all come with ideas, but, but we have to examine our ideas. We have to critique our ideas. We have to discern our ideas. That's what Paul is doing. And interestingly enough, he says, you know, you guys are, are supposed to come together in one judgment and one mind being unified. And these are the kinds of ideas that keep you from doing that. See, we gather together around our ideas and... It may be that the word of the cross is not a central idea. All right, let me fast forward to the 21st century. Whew, there's a lot of voices out there. So let me just pick on a few that I think are very relevant and maybe undercurrent ones that we don't notice so easily. So very limited list here. I'm going to race through these. Here's a few voices. You've got, I'm going to pick on the voice of the scientist or the voice of natural mindedness. Uh, I'm going to highlight the voice of the politician. And I want to highlight the pleasure broker voice that is in our culture. Let me, let me start with the, the clash that exists between the word of the cross and, and naturalism. The idea that everything about our existence can be explained by natural forces Life can be done with a dependency upon the natural dimensions of our lives, how educated we are, how much money we have, what our technology affords us the ability to do, an explanation for our origins. All these things are trying to create a system that tells us this is how you have the good life. 
Dallas Willard said, the idea that knowledge and, of course, reality is limited to the world of natural sciences is the single most destructive idea on the stage of life today. And it's only gotten worse since he wrote that. J.P. Moreland says, as the ideas that constitute scientism have become more pervasive in our culture, the Western world has turned increasingly secular and the power centers of our culture, the universities, the media, the entertainment industry, the Supreme Court, have come increasingly to regard religion as a a private superstition. Scientism says that the hard sciences alone have the intellectual authority to give us knowledge of reality. According to philosopher of science Tom Sorrell, Scientism is the belief that science, especially natural science, is the most valuable part of human learning because it is the most authoritative or serious or beneficial. In other words, when you have competing knowledge claims from different sources, the scientific will always trump the non-scientific. In scientism, therefore, science is the very paradigm of truth and rationality. Interesting to go from the first century to the 21st century. In the first century, it was the voice of the philosopher. In the 21st century, it's the voice of the scientist. No matter what, it is, it is human ability trapped between ears. No matter what. Have your most scientific moment that you've ever had. It is filtered through a human functioning brain between your ears that interprets what that science means how much of that science do I need to know in order to formulate ideas and finish my opinion and solve this issue about life and my existence but you and I live in a world that is featuring natural elements natural abilities natural resources and it's teaching us it's seeping into the church it's teaching us to do the same so when you and I want to make our biggest adjustments in life, we want, to, we want to improve things or adjust things, we often run to that which is natural. In, in our country, this has happened for the last 100 years. Maybe not quite that long. In our country, education is a savior. Make sure, whatever you do, you get your children in the right schools that lead to the right schools. Because if you don't, they'll have no future and no life. You know how many parents live underneath that freak out moment? Because we just think if we just educate, if we just put ideas, the natural ideas into people, we will unlock a future that's wonderful for them. And this is all throughout our culture. And this idea of the word of the cross just gets pushed farther and farther to the edges of our lives as we we think about natural reasons and natural resources. And this is increasing, right? I mean, a, a few years ago, the church still believed in demons. Still believed that people might actually be demon possessed or oppressed by spiritual forces that have an influence over the life that they are or are not living. Hearing any of that lately? Well, there's an explanation for why you are the way you are and why the world is the way it is. There ain't a lot of people publishing anything about demonic stuff because that's starting to sound kind of ridiculous, don't you think? 
Come on, Keith, you believe in that hooky, spooky kind of stuff? Ghosts, you believe in ghosts? I mean, come on. I've got an iPhone. You believe in ghosts? I think technology has advanced us beyond such childish foolishness, hasn't it? And that's how that feels, right? Because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's things that God explains about our world that are going to sound dumber and dumber and dumber. So who's looking to deal with demonic influence in their life? Who's who's looking to make use of the resources of God? Here's an interesting thing. I think I've got enough time to do this. Um, You got that that video, Ronald? Um, All right, be careful what you're hearing me say here. I'm not saying that the physical dimensions of our lives, this is, I'm not like, like a hyper-opposite Platonist. I'm not saying the physical dimensions of our lives have no influence over us, don't matter. They do matter. Right? There's a physical dimension. You and I are housed in bodies that have cells that function. They influence our existence. But, but science, since the 80s and 90s, has shoved human behavior more and more and more into the genetics category. To where the explanation for who you are and why you are, science has allowed us to explore genomes and DNA and your personal background physiologically as an explanation for why you are the way you are. So in the world of natural thinking, genetics is determinative. It's determining who you are, right? Here, check check this out. Meet your genes. Listen up. I'm a gene that impacts your muscle composition. BTBD9 here. I could influence how much you move your arms and legs in your sleep. I'm a twitchy little gene. We're two of the genes that may impact your risk for celiac disease. We have a gluten situation. I'm linked to a Neanderthal trait. Lactose intolerance. Caffeine consumption. There's a whole world of genes just waiting to meet you in over 90 genetic reports at 23andMe.com. So who knew all you coffee drinkers? I mean, genetically, you were just dispositioned and determined that you were going to love coffee. And you just won't be able to control that. Quit if you'd like, but good luck. All right, well, at some point, that natural explanation bumps into something that sounds like the Bible is foolish when it turns around and says, do not be anxious. Oh, well, Jesus obviously didn't understand my gene pool. I, I have the anxious gene. There's no way I can't be anxious. And, you know, when, when you get to the place where you're examining coffee consumption as a genetic issue, is there anything about your behavior that's not being influenced by your genes? Now, maybe there is an influence in your gene pool. I'm not bringing that to the Bible and silencing the Bible as though the Bible is out of touch. God didn't know anything about genes when he said, do not fornicate or commit sexual immorality. Well, that's easy for the guy who doesn't have a gene problem. (laughs) Now, I will say this, honestly. I think somebody can have more of a struggle in a category that the Bible calls for obedience in. For one guy, sure, not a problem. And it won't be a problem for him, ever. And somebody else, it's a struggle every single day. Can you explain the difference between those two folks? Not all the time. No, I can't. Might it be genetically influenced? I could, I could go there. 
But yet the Bible calls the guy who struggles genetically to stop doing it. Even though it might be a challenge for him. Because the Bible is also introducing you to something called the word of the cross. And the word of the cross, as we keep reading in this chapter in 1 Corinthians, is going to introduce us to the empowerment of the spirit. So you get a new DNA, if you will, by the spirit in you that begins to influence what you can and cannot be and what you can and cannot do. But that gets harder and harder to believe in an age that explains everything scientifically. Let me skip down. How about the clash of our culture with plural uh, pleasureism? If everything's natural, listen to this thought, the second shift is in the realm of guidance for living one's life. And it goes from truth, as the thing that guides us, to immediate satisfaction of desire. What's guiding us? Is it truth that God has said, or is it, oh, that looks fun. That looks rewarding. That'll take me to my destiny. Scientism tells us that there is no truth related to the meaning and purpose of life. The difference between right and wrong or virtue and vice. Life after death and of course God himself. And even if there were truths in these areas, no one could have a clue as to what they are. It follows that truth as a first priority guide for living must be dethroned. After all, who can guide his life by an unknowable set of truths that probably aren't really there anyway? But people need something to guide their lives. And so the absolutization of instant gratification and the satisfaction of personal desire have replaced truth. You know, we started the year studying our age of enchantment. And I shared with you the thought that personal human flourishing has become the gatekeeper of people's lives. We stand at the doorway of life and do, should we do that? Should we not? What determines that is not a God's revelation about that in himself. What determines that is whether or not I see a reward in it. Whether or not it's going to be good for me. It further my dreams or goals or satisfy me and so on. That's what's determining people's lives. Rather than God's word. Listen, this is, this is seeped into the church. This is in us as well. Just like Paul had to address some of these issues. All right, let, me, let me touch one last hot button here. I saved this one for last in case y'all wanted to storm out on it. <laughs> the clash with political passions. You know, the headlines used to be, some of you guys who are old enough, if you were talking politics and the whole governmental stuff, it, it used to be a clash between communism, socialism, and capitalism, right? That's what we used to talk about. And everybody who was capitalistic was against all the communists and the socialists, and, but, but they got along kind of with each other. Eh, not anymore, right? Today, it's conservative and liberal or alt-right and progressive, right? The, the lines have been drawn in, in new locations, all right? Some of this I've just written out. I'm going to read it to you. Some of this is not in your outline. All right. There's a lot of time and energy today being spent on sifting through political views and opinions. Remember, these, these voices, they seek to offer a worldview that has the power to bring the good life back to our country and our people and our time. It might be. 
critically important for the church to not be disengaged from the word of the cross while it seeks to find all the right voices and positions on gun control, racial inequalities, gender inequalities, taxation and tariffs, border policies, the size and role of government, the sky's going to fall after midterm elections, the hope of the Supreme Court, right? You and I venture into these topics with voices in our head and a whisper of the word of the cross. You'll know that depending on how animated you were this past week. You might have been introduced by your own angst to what system are you thinking is controlling your future? Who's... Whose political system do you think has that kind of power over your life? In your outline, I said, an honest appraisal of some of today's church would lead one to say, it sounds like God's people are acknowledging and appreciative of the word of the cross, but the real hope and future and defining of life is in our political future. That's what we sound like. That's what the church sounds like. And remember, there's this thing called the word of the cross. Let me just introduce something about it. We'll, we'll unpack it further. In your outline, I'll put this. The need and the great reality redefine, or what redefines reality is the word of the cross. It changes man from the inside out. It rescues man from himself. It brings the only light and life that will make a difference. But if we ignore this, then all we're left with is a moral shouting match with people from a different philosophical camp. It's just your morals versus my morals. No word of the cross. No recognition that something needs to go off on the inside that only the Spirit can do in us to prompt from the inside out a life and revelation that God needs to bring, and he's the only one who can bring it to us. Instead, let's just adopt philosophical positions on morals and what would be right, and let's just shout at each other. Let's just be rude and obnoxious because the person who gets the smartest argument in last is the one who wins. Does anybody else besides me watch some of these TV programs at night and I just, I, just, I just want to find them. You know, where's your mother? You, you running this show. Where, you are so rude. Does your mother ever slap you for interrupting people? It's like, don't let anybody speak. Step all over each other because what wins and what's going to shape the future of humanity is natural ideas. Really? Is that how it works? What about the word of the cross? The God who knew that the only hope of humanity is that my son comes and puts on human form because none of y'all will be able to do this. And he takes your place and he dies and he rips down a barrier that separates you, humanity, from me, your God. And when he does that and you receive that by faith, a reunion takes place of my life now coming to man so that man can become what he was called to be. That's the word of the cross. You you, you really want to stand across the aisle from somebody and shout at them like a moron? 
because they, they can't seem to live a godly life that you think they ought to be living? It, it, are we missing something? Is the church ignoring theology here? So I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in government. I'm not saying that there's not common grace that we should seek to bless people with. But, but listen, there's stuff loaded in this little section of, of, of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, but, but we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, none of them understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew what we knew, they would have done something different. But they don't. And yet you expect that they will anyway. Out of what power source? Where, where will they get the desire for this? See, this is where positivity and human potential has not served some of us. Because we come to the Bible with the idea that man is just this ball of internal goodness, just needs the right education and maybe a good self-help book, and he can turn his whole universe into something really, really positive. And we come to the Bible deeply committed to that idea. Listen, the Bible doesn't sound like human potential. It sounds like human depravity. The word of the cross starts with, as we said a few weeks ago, you're going to need to declare bankruptcy because you can't do this. You cannot save yourself. You cannot reform yourself. You cannot produce godliness apart from God working it in you. That's the word of the cross. The, The word of the cross doesn't come along like a cheerleader and say, come on. Come on, people, now, y'all, get along and try harder. Here, here's a good self-help book. It's underneath every one of your chairs. A, chair, a book for you, and a book for you, and a book for you. You go home and read this, and you're going to be a better person next week. And we're going to just change the whole world. That's not the word of the cross. The word of the cross says the corruption of humanity is so deep, so powerful, that it only answers to me. And only if there is an advantage for me. Will I do something noble in some category? The word of the cross comes along and says, you know, how about, how about you die and a new life is joined to you? A new life is given to you. And you get to see some things in this life. Right? Later in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How did you and I come to our philosophical positions? By a revelation of the Spirit of God. That's how we got there. What does this do in this age? I'm not trying to disengage us from the political process and from voting and supporting. You know, I'm going I'm to go eat after today. I'm going to do all kinds of natural things. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to drink some stuff. Right? I'm going I'm to live in a natural world. So we have a government. We vote, encourage all that. We should be involved. We should, we should have debates. We should push forward ideas. But, but understand, that stuff is on the edge of our existence. What's at the center of our existence is the word of the cross. We understand that ultimately, man cannot reform himself. 
he, he needs to die and be born again. That's the word of the cross. So let me just suggest this for everybody who yelled at a TV screen this week. I think I put this in your outline. Activism has replaced prayer because naturalism has replaced supernaturalism. Human potential and human effort sit at the center of what makes life what it is or what we hope it will be. But remember, the word of the cross begins with human bankruptcy and human need for divine intervention and enablement. Kurt, you can, you can come back up. Um, if, if what we know the human life needs, and that's going to show up in the arena of our culture, you and I would be a thousand times better off if we spent our time in a prayer closet on our knees asking God to do things in the hearts of man and to reveal himself by the Spirit to our age and our generation rather than pulling with us human potential ideas and inherent goodness that now causes us to think everybody can just turn a corner if we can just argue them into it. If we could just have the last word on the show tonight that shuts down all the argument because I'm a Greek rhetorician and I'm really good at it. Put me on that show. I've got an argument they haven't. How come they didn't do this with Kavanaugh? How come they went, I don't know. We, we want to win by argument? Really? Is that how the kingdom works? Listen, I'm an arguer by nature. Unfortunately, there would be people sitting in the front row who were very kind just now not to amen that. (laughs) So there's something in me that loves finding where your idea is flawed. I love to do that. It takes a lot of self-control for me to sit in the presence of a poorly thought out idea. (laughs) And there's a lot of them out there. But human argument, human persuasion, it is, it, it is part of life. But when we put our hope there, it, it's, it's an expression of naturalism, not supernaturalism. The word of the cross required supernatural involvement. God had to do something for us that we could not do. And God must do that for us every day of our lives. That word of the cross is quite different than these other words. So you started off writing the word discern at the top of your page. Discern. Do these ideas, do these hopes, do these systems, do they sound like God's wisdom revealed most clearly in the word of the cross? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to close this way this morning. I want to pray for some folks. I think there's some folks here that just have, have a need for folks to come alongside them in prayer. You know, there's, there's some needs for folks who aren't here this morning that, that matter to us. Some, some folks in hospitals. So I just want to make it available. And if you just want to come up over here and just gather. And let's, if you've got a need and you, you want the elders to pray for you, anoint you with oil, let's, let's look to God supernaturally. 
not just be dependent upon natural resources and our own abilities and thoughts and what we can do. Look to God. Let's go to Him in need. Let Him show up in the way that only He can show up in our lives. All right, for for all who you're concerned about this Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court decision, how it moves forward, what happens next, what doesn't happen next, etc. I know that's an emotional issue all over the place. It, it's, it's tied to other things, voices, and so that can be hard. But, you know, we ought to be praying about that. The Bible does call on us to pray for our governments. So, if you'd like to pray about that, I'm going to dismiss the church. So, so if you are, are leaving, you can leave. Um, but if you'd like to pray about that, I'd like to ask you, why don't you guys come occupy this space over here? If you'd like to pray together about God's purpose in this Supreme Court nomination and appointment, uh, let's do that. Let's come pray. Right? That's a whole lot more powerful than just complaining, a whole lot more powerful than getting an attitude about that ignorant, flawed argument that I just heard somebody have the other day. Uh, let's pray. Let's ask God supernaturally to show up in our world. That's the word of the cross. A broken place needed a supernatural God to show up in it with only what he could do in that setting. That's the word of the cross. So if you've got a need in your life, come join us for prayer. Just come up on this side. Let us just pray with you and, and share with us what, what's going on. We just close us in prayer and you guys will be dismissed. Father, thank you for inspiring your word into the first century in a way that's so relevant for the 21st century. Well, truly your word is alive, but truly your word is so needed in our lives. And God, would you make us as a church discerning? Give us eyes that see red flags when ideas come to us and they are hostile to the word of the cross. God, may we notice that. May we discern that. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a need, come on forward. You guys could move to the foyer quietly. That would help us as we pray for folks.